Welcome to the Ridge Life Podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Yeah, that weather yesterday was uh, quite interesting. We were on our way over to uh, Mishawaka, and um, our phone started going off, you know, you know, and, um, you know, the coming down, the clouds are swirling around and stuff. And Jamie's like, don't you think we should go inside somewhere? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. We'll go somewhere. So we, <laughs> we go into uh, um, uh, auto parts store. I think it was AutoZone. So we walk in there and like, we're looking around. We're like, oh, this is a metal building. This probably isn't that good to be inside this. And then like all the auto uh, zone workers, they're like outside with their cameras like, whoa, look, it's right over us right now. Like, oh, we better leave. So (laughs) it's quite interesting. Uh, We're going to be here in Philippians, Philippians chapter number four. And uh, as we've been moving through this uh, last chapter here in Philippians, uh, Paul's major theme here is that of joy, having joy, uh, responding in joy, choosing to have joy. And uh, the command to rejoice always should be obeyed and lived out regardless of our circumstances. To rejoice is a choice. You have to choose to rejoice. And we've uh, looked at that uh, in some depth here. And we've already discussed about how we, are to, how we act really does reveal what we are thinking. Um, what you do re- reveals what you do think about. And Paul told us, you know, no, you need to be thinking biblically. What things are you supposed to be thinking about? Whatever things are true, honest, of good report, uh, virtue. And if there's any things worthy of praise, uh, you need to be thinking about those things. And uh, Paul even talked about how he modeled that in his own life. uh, Verse number nine, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And I gave you several examples over the past few weeks about how Paul uh, lived that out, how he actually lived out biblical thinking, how he actually lived out uh, the type of life that uh, would exhibit joy uh, regardless of his circumstances and that he would live a life of, uh, free of anxiousness Um, that he continued in uh, following uh, what the word taught. And uh, on the heels of all of that, um, Paul is going to pick that thought up of of he's modeling this, he's lived this out, he says, you received it of me. And he's going to show that he has learned the secret of being content. Whatever situation that he has found himself in, he has learned the secret of being content. And that's what we're gonna talk about today, about pursuing contentment. You know, with everything that we have today, people are still discontent. They don't don't find pleasure. They're discontent with, with what they have. And as a believer in Christ, we must learn how to be content. And really, to be content, it's it's a mark of spiritual maturity. It's growing in your faith so much that you've learned how to be content. And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you today. Grow spiritually by learning how to be content. So let's take a look here at our uh, text that we're going to look at here. And over the next uh, course of the few weeks, we're going to kind of deal with this uh, in depth. But this morning, I just really want to talk about what is contentment and why we're not content. Um, 
But let's look here at a text here. Philippians 4.10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There it is. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so when we look at contentment and what we're talking about having being content and how it's gained, Paul's secret here, his, he says that I have learned the secret. He says, I've learned how to be content with whether it's in abundance or whether it's in need. And he says, there's a secret that I've learned in all of this. Now, remember that Paul is writing, uh, when he's writing this, his, his situation was not good. Where was he? He was in prison. He was chained to a Roman guard under house arrest. And, and furthermore than that, uh, there were believers, there were people that were criticizing his ministry. Uh, he was facing slander. And so here he is, he finds himself in these situations and he's saying, whatever situation I'm in, I've learned the secret of being content. And so Paul is rejoicing in the Lord. He has received the gift from the Philippians. He desires to encourage them by showing God's provision for him and for them. Now in this passage, we find that Paul thanks the Philippians for the concern and it's demonstrated in such a practical manner in both the present and the past. Because he says, even when I was there in Thessalonica, he said, there was no churches that were supporting me. He says, but you, you guys did. He says, I want to thank you for that. But I've learned I don't need that stuff in order to be content. He says, whether I'm abounding or whether I found myself in want and need, uh, he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. And he points out this gift was a well, the, the gift that was offered to them was well-pleasing to God. He says it's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. And in addition, we find that Paul is glad to get the gift, but it's not the gift that he was seeking. He says, I don't need that gift in order to be content. He says, I've learned the secret of contentment and it's not in the substance of things that I have or don't have. And so he was more excited about what the gift meant in terms of their spiritual growth and partnership with him than what the gift might do for him personally. 
And then he, look what he says here, verses 11, 12. He says about this, the, the gift, and he says that God would meet all his needs and that he would meet all their needs too in verses 11 and 12. He talks about that he shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus in verse number 19. So how much is that? It's an infinite abundance. God provides us everything that we need regardless of the circumstances that we may find ourselves in. Webster's Dictionary defines contentment as the state or quality of being satisfied, not displeased. Now, how many people, including yourself, feel that way? That you find yourself in a state, a quality of life that you're not displeased, you're satisfied. Well, we live in a society today that has so many things that we should be the least discontented people, but is that true? Nope, we're still discontent. I would say that discontentment still runs rampant in our society and in the lives of many Christians as well. Consider the following. Discontentment with jobs, wanting more pay, more vacation, time off, along with working less. Discontentment with spouses shows up in affairs and divorce and domestic turmoil, which are really at, at epidemic levels still. Um, parents complain about their kids. They have too few or too many. Uh, they're at expense, so extra income is always needed and you have to stay home to watch them. Then there's so many kids are disrespectful and cause heartaches. With the amount of time and money put into trying to change something about their bodies, you have to conclude that they like little about themselves. They don't like their hair, so they change their hair. They don't like their face, so they change their face. They don't like their size, their shape, the fitness, or their age. And so we're always trying to change things because we're not happy with what we already have. Consumer credit and debt levels are, are at astronomical levels, yet Americans are still not satisfied with material things. Think of how many things you can buy online. Oh man, I got my, got my package today. Woo, all right. You tear it open and hey, all right, got to go order another package. We're not content with what we have. There's always something more to get. Americans usually find something to complain about in church too. The sermons are too long. They don't make me feel good while also being too intellectual or too simple. The music is either too loud or too soft, fast or slow, old or new. We're not happy. We're very discontent. Never has a country had so much and yet been so discontented. Our basic needs are met even for those below even the so-called poverty level, but yet they're not content. So the focus changes to frivolous, unmet desires, especially methods of escape and diversion in order to find satisfaction. Now in saying all this, we must also recognize that discontentment is a great motivator. For example, if you have bad breath, Right? You don't want to be content with bad breath, do you? <laughs> right? I mean, you don't. You're going to be motivated to brush your teeth, right? Put a mint in your mouth, right? Um, if your hair is a mess, use this product. It'll help you, right? 
But we have the message of, of, that's being pushed on us all the time. Buy this, you'll be happy. Get this, you'll look better. Have this, it'll be better for you. Do this, it'll be better for you. We're so discontent with what we have. Discontentment can also be good in your spiritual life as a motivator to greater spiritual maturity. Are you satisfied with your prayer life? You satisfied with your Bible reading? Are you satisfied with your walk with Christ? See, if we're discontent in those areas, that's a good thing. And that should motivate us to pursue more spiritual maturity in our life. And so it should drive us to gain what is really needed in order to be content in life, not the things that, uh, that we may desire or want. But should the Christian be marked by the common discontentment that characterizes everyone else? Should Christians be like non-Christians in being anxious and angry and jealous and hurt and vengeful and lonely and discouraged? Should believers feel like they are either missing out on something in life or just as failures? The sad fact is that many professing, professing Christians pursue the same things the world is after in the effort to find satisfaction in life. Higher income, more things, bigger house, nicer car, more comfort, exotic vacations, sports, hobbies, continually changing relationships, etc., 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 etc. Should that be the way that Christians should be pursuing life? No. We should be different. There should be a difference in our life because of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. So then why are Christians so much like the world and how do we change to be different? Well, Paul tells us, he says, I have learned the secret of being content. Let's take a look here at a few things here. Contentment is a mark of spiritual maturity. Listen to what Paul says here in Philippians 10 and 11. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, there it is, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So the first thing I want you to understand is that contentment is something that must be learned. It's a spiritual discipline. It's something, a mark of spiritual maturity in our life. When you become a Christian, you don't automatically become content. It does not come automatically. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about that, yes, as a those that are in Christ are a new creation. They are a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But like a new baby, you must learn and grow into maturity. Well, there is a radical change, the most radical change imaginable. We must grow in our spiritual walk with Christ. It's not a zap. Whoa, I am perfect now. I got everything figured out as a Christian. It doesn't work that way. There has to be growth in your life as a believer in Christ. And that comes through putting off the old and putting on the new constantly, constantly. That is our growth. That is our sanctification in Christ. So how do we define 
contentment. How do we define that? Well, listen to what Paul says here. And he says this, he learned it in Philippians 4, 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, as I already stated, Webster's Dictionary defines contentment as the state or quality of being satisfied or not displeased. Well, the problem with that is we don't get our definition of words from Webster's Dictionary to define what God is talking about here in the Word of God. The word that Paul uses here is a word that's translated as contentment here in Philippians 4.11. The word used here is a rather interesting one. It is a compound word, the first part meaning self, the second part meaning sufficient. So it means to be self-sufficient not needing assistance from outside. So Paul says, I am self-sufficient. I don't need assistance from the outside things to make me joyous, to make me happy, to make me content with life. In the context of Paul's usage here, he's saying that he had learned to be content, self-satisfied, not needing anything additional in all circumstances, whether they be humble means of prosperity, being filled or going hungry or having abundance or suffering need. In essence, what Paul is saying is that he had learned to be in charge of himself. He was no longer bound by circumstances like a puppet being manipulated by whatever was occurring around him. He says, I don't need those things in my life. He did not need any changes to occur in order to fulfill the purposes of his life. Paul had learned the secret of no longer being someone who reacted to his environment with his response being determined by what was going on around him. Have you learned the secret or do the things that go on around you determine your response? Paul says, I've learned how to be content. How do you react or respond to any of the following situations? Now, all these situations are from real life and these are from situations of people that I know personally. How would you respond in these situations? The people at work or school don't like you. Your in-laws don't like you and try to interfere in your marriage. You go outside and find that someone had smashed into your vehicle. You find yourself suddenly unemployed. Your house has been broken into. Your house burns down and you lose everything in it. Your spouse develops a severe physical handicap. You find out that you cannot have children of your own. Your child dies. You are diagnosed with an incurable terminal disease. How do we react or how do we respond in those circumstances? Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in whatever situation that I have found myself in. Could you still be content in those situations? Paul could. Consider what Paul wrote some five or six years earlier describing some of the things he had suffered. Turn with me over to uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And I want you to see some of the things that Paul went through. And he says, even in these situations, I have learned 
how to be content regardless of my circumstances. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse uh, 24. He says, uh, beginning verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So Paul had 195 scars, marks, beatings, on his body. If the Apostle Paul were to be alive today and he were to come up here and he were to maybe take off his coat or expose his body in the back of his body, maybe the sides of his body, we would probably be horrified in what his body looked like. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day. I was adrift at sea, paddling water. I just uh, watched a, uh, a movie about uh, the U.S. Indianapolis there in the Second World War that transported the atomic bomb uh, to Tenement. And they went alone by themselves. They didn't have an escort so that they wouldn't attract attention and a Japanese submarine sunk the ship and those men were out in the water, shark infested waters for I think it was like four or five days before they were rescued. Uh, Paul says, I was out in the water a night and a day in the deep, just tread water, tread water. Would you be content in that situation? Paul was. He says, uh, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul says, I have endured all of these things, but I have learned the secret of being content, regardless of my situations, regardless of my circumstances. So could you be content in those situations? I'm not asking you if you would like any of it, but could you be content? Have you reached a level of Christian maturity in which you can remain completely in control of yourself regardless of your circumstances? You hear about people just saying, I'm having a nervous breakdown or I'm, I'm having this, I, I, can't, I can't control what's going around me and so I just freak out, right? If anybody's gonna have a nervous breakdown, it should have been the Apostle Paul with some of the stuff that's going on in his life. But he says, I've learned how to be content in whatever situations that I have found myself in. We all still feel all the emotions, but you're not falling apart. You're still going on toward your lifetime goals, regardless of your circumstances. So what is the secret of contentment? How could Paul be content in whatever situation? It was learned for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You see, we need to understand that this level of contentment that Paul is talking about here, 
being self-satisfied and in control of yourself regardless of circumstances while still feeling all the personal and uh, uh, sympathetic and empathetic emotions as humans is impossible for those who are apart from Christ. Those that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they've never repented of sin and believed in Christ as the only hope of salvation, they cannot be content in life. And I'll show you the reasons why for that here in just a moment. This is why doctrine and teaching of Scripture is so important to our lives and the life of the church, because if we don't have teaching of the Word of God, if we don't have teaching of doctrine and continuing in doctrine, how are we going to mature as believers in Christ? It has to be which has to be something that's developed as we hear the word of God, as we respond to the word of God. And we can learn contentment from what God's word teaches us. So without the teaching of scripture being grounded, biblical truth, we are immature in our spiritual walk. And so we gotta have the, the basis, we gotta have the, the foundation of scripture ingrained in us and responding to it and allowing it to be thinking biblically in our lives because Paul says, I learned the secret of contentment. Turn over to Ephesians chapter number two and I wanna show you the reasons why here a person cannot be content that does not know Jesus Christ. Look what it says here, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the Bible here clearly says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead, spiritually dead. That means that you are separated from God and that you are living in sin. That's what death is. It's separation. When the person dies and you go to the funeral home and you see the person there in the casket, they have been separated from this life. They're dead. And Paul says here that those that do not know Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are separated from God. Some people have spiritual feelings of one sort of another, but if you've not been made alive together with Christ, look at verse number five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
God made us alive together with Christ. So if you're dead, you have to be made alive. And that only happens through the matter of the new birth, the salvation, uh, what God provides for us. And so if you've not been saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, then in reality, you are spiritually dead. You do not have a personal relationship with God. Even if you're religious, even if you're spiritual, you don't have a personal relationship with God. Your spiritual feelings are towards some entity that is posing to you as God. Being spiritually dead, you cannot do what God has commanded, nor can you please him. Instead, your life is lived out, look what he says, it's lived out according to the course of this world. You once walked following the course of this world. He says, you followed the prince of the power of the air. You were following Satan. Those that do not know Jesus Christ follow Satan. He says that that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul explains further in verse three that you live and indulge in what? The lust of the flesh. Lust simply means the strong desire. It's coupled here with flesh. It is talking about whatever your physical body craves, food, pleasure, comfort. That's what you desire. That's what you're after. That is why people struggle so much over a healthy diet or they give into sexual immorality. It's pleasure. So Paul says here that they live this way. They live this way. That's what they do. Paul also says that they carried out the desires of the mind. You cater to whatever comes to the mind that you would like. You seek to gratify your personal mental appetites, which is anything that absorbs your mental attention and energy. He says, this is how you lived one time before Christ. That's what we did. Now, those who are spiritually dead, controlled by Satan and by nature, a children of wrath have no hope of contentment, yet the desire for contentment is there. They want peace, they want joy, they want happiness. And the reason why all those things are so strong is because they know that there's something out there that could provide that, but they don't know what that is. And so they seek it in the multitude of things that is around them. And just think about all the stuff that we have, padded chairs, we have air conditioning. I mean, I would have never thought about this, but my daughter, came the other day and she was just like, she's like, dad, can you turn off the cold? Because I, I'm cold. I need, I need to be hot now. What's wrong with you? I mean, we have, there, there's devices now. You can, you can get a smoker, uh, a smoker grill and it's Bluetooth controlled. You can sit in your living room in your pajamas, smoke your meat, raise the temperature, lower the temperature, and it can tell you when it's done. But we're not content. Paul says these people that, are, that do not know Christ, they cannot have contentment in this life. They, can't, they don't even know what contentment is because they're spiritually dead. But now you say, wait a minute, Mike, wait a minute. That all may be true, but I am no longer dead in my trespasses and sins. I've been changed. I know Christ is my savior. I've been made alive with Christ. I've received his grace through faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for my sins. What does this have to do with me? Well, that's really the big question, isn't it? 
Why are we still discontent with the circumstances in this life then? See, while it may be true that you are a real Christian and that the power of sin has been broken in your life so that you can now live unto righteousness is what uh, Romans chapter six says. The big question is whether you are or not. It's one thing to know Christ as our savior, but it's another thing to actually be obedient to the teachings of the word of God. That's why I say just because you become a Christian doesn't automatically make you totally perfect that you don't still struggle in sin, that you still don't struggle with the old desires, still struggle with the old ways of thinking, the old ways of life, of walking according to the course of this world. It's something that we have to put to death. It's something that we have to renew our minds daily through the word of God, as what Romans uh, 12, uh, 2 says about renewing our mind, moment by moment, day by day, that we are supposed to be doing that. Consider these verses written to Christians, Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Romans chapter 6, 11 through 13. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Colossians 1, 2 through 10. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices, have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. We cannot continue in the old pattern and the old ways of life and expect to be holy in our manner of life. It doesn't work that way. God does not bless disobedience. So if God's word says something and it says you're supposed to live this way and do it this way, if you're like, well, you know what? If I just keep doing it this way, it'll all just kind of work out in the end. No, God does not bless disobedience. We have to follow scripture. We have to follow the teachings of the word of God as what he says of what we're supposed to do. And Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. And so the problem we face as Christians is that we easily slip back into our old habits, into our old ways of thinking, or we succumb to the pressure of society to mold us to take on their opinions and practices. That's why we're not to be conformed to the image of this world, but be renewed by the transforming of our mind. So you may be a Christian, but too often, 
Too many Christians live, act, and think in practical terms like non-Christians. And so with that in mind, let me explain the major worldviews here that people live by, how they live. And I think a lot of this, we, we slip back into these worldviews, and that's the reason why we're not content. So let me just give you to them here uh, really quickly. So why we're not content. I'm gonna give you six here. Um, and how people think and how they act before Christ. We all had at least one or multiple of these worldviews that drove our thinking, okay? The first one here is deism. And this world uh, view became popular in the rise of rationalism in the early 1700s. The belief that there was a God was still held, but he was now seen as impersonal. He created everything and then left it alone. God is not involved, and the way that this is seen in people's lives is man's hope for contentment is in figuring it all out and making it all work. You're in charge of the situation. In other words, well, I know that God is in control of things and I, I know that he's, he's created all this stuff, but I gotta be the one that's gotta figure this out and I gotta make it work. Okay? If we have that type of thinking, that goes contrary to what scripture teaches. And so then we're not content. Ecclesiastes really expresses the ultimate futility of this view. Uh, chapter one, verse number one, there's no real gain to man's work. Generations come and go with nothing changing. That's uh, chapter one, verse two. There's nothing new under the sun. It's chapter one, verses nine and 10. You will eventually be forgotten. Chapter one, verse number 11. And even with increasing wisdom and knowledge, there is only grief and increasing pain. Chapter one, verse 18. Really exciting, isn't it? So if you're just living life just to try to figure it all out on your own, you're not gonna be content. Many Christians end up as practical deists. Their view is that God is not interested in me, but I'll just keep trying anyways. They really don't believe there's a personal relationship as problems in life arise. They may take the view that they will just hang in there, but tell me what contentment there be in just survival. Well, you know, my life is just horrible, but I'm just going to hang in there. I'm just going to try to get through. That's not being content. That's living like a deist. That's just acting like God is not in control of anything. Here's the second one, naturalism. This is a major worldview in our own society. In this view, God is removed and only nature exists. This is the philosophical basis of evolution and evolutionary thought that has invaded so many areas of education today. Naturalism leaves the meaning of life only in the here and now. Contentment will come from immediate circumstances. So I need to live for myself with that in view and then I'll be happy. It's the idea of eat, drink and be married because tomorrow we die. So I'm just gonna live for the here and now and that's the way I'm gonna live my life. Ecclesiastes 2, 3 through 10 describes Solomon's attempt in this type of life. He used all of his resources in trying to make his life as comfortable as possible. Listen to what he says. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see that what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself. 
from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men. Boy, that's like the iPod of its day. Imagine, you just, you just have singers surrounding you. Uh, James, I want a different song, please. He had all of this stuff in life, but yet, was he content? He was a naturalist. And so if you live your life always thinking, if I could just get this, or if I could just get that, I'll be happy. If I could just have a better this, or a better that, I'll be happy. You're living your life as a naturalist. Here's another one, nihilism. Nihilism. The worldview is the child of naturalism. It boldly recognizes that naturalism gives no ultimate meaning in life and the fruit of your labor feeds your mouth. But soon you are hungry again and there's no satisfaction in anything. Life is an absurd accident, basically, and therefore there's no point in even trying. The result is complacency or despair and a I quit. This is usually behind a lot of suicide that people just get to a point in life where they say, what's the reason for even living anymore? I quit. And they're not content. And don't think for a moment that there's not Christians that fall into this trap because there are. Here's another one, existentialism. Existentialism is the philosophy It views life as absurd because life ends in the grave, but you need to go on and make your choices anyway. Contentment and meaning come from doing your own thing and not subjecting yourself to the world for it's considered to be stupid anyways. It's just saying, eh, I'm just gonna do my own thing. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm just gonna do what I wanna do regardless of what anybody else has to say. And I'm gonna find contentment in doing what I wanna do. And that is uh, pretty dangerous and so, Uh, You're the master of your own fate um, and you live that way, then you are an uh, existentialist. Here's another one, pantheism. Pantheism is another worldview that has taken a strong foothold in our societies. Uh, A lot of this came in through the movement in the 60s. Everything that was just love and let live and, you know, whatever, all this kind of uh, thought came in. Um, This is the view of Eastern mysticism. Physical life is relatively unimportant, so only the bare essentials in life are lived out. In other words, there's uh, more of a emphasis on the spiritual, um, and the goal is to become one with the universe. And that is how the state of nirvana is described. Peace and tranquility are gained by withdrawing from the world through meditation and solitude. As one person put it, You have achieved ultimate success in life when you are no longer involved with the problems of life and you have become like a rock with a smile painted on it. Have you ever met people like that? Like talking to a rock? They check out of life. Just, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna rise above all my problems here and I'm just gonna check out. I'm removing myself from life. Christianity has been severely assaulted by Eastern mystical thought. Uh, Actually, that goes back a long ways. Christian asceticism, even back into the early uh, centuries, had this in mind. Early Gnosticism that found its way into the early church. That's what uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John deal with. Uh, 
uh, and it refutes this view that spirituality is everything and daily living is nothing. That's not how God made us though. How did God made us? He made us both spirit, body, and what? Soul. All of life, all of our life is dealt with that. So we live our life that way. We don't just live our life just for the spiritual. We don't live our life just for the physical. It's all of our life that we live our life in. Um, Got to be really careful with a lot of, of stuff. There's a lot, of, a lot of teaching within a lot of churches today that uh, with this Eastern mysticism stuff, this pantheism beliefs that has crept into churches where they repeat certain phrases over and over to try to rise above their, their problems. This is why I say it's so important that you're very careful with what you're reading and what you're listening to. Because even though they call themselves a Christian, they use the words God, Jesus, God, gospel, whatever, doesn't mean that they're following biblical truth. You gotta be very careful. And a lot of this stuff has, has crept into a lot of churches today. Uh, here's another one, humanism. Humanism, this philosophy has become the latest step in this progression of worldviews. Rather than losing yourself in the spiritual realm, the pantheism, everything spiritual. In this view, you must realize that you already have unlimited power to reach a state of understanding where everything is wonderful. So contentment is achieved by speaking into your situation, becoming a better you, living your best life now. Does that sound familiar? A lot of the uh, famous uh, celebrity preachers, teachers, book authors, all this kind of stuff, they teach this thing where you can actually become a God. It's very dangerous. It's humanistic thought. And so you gotta be very careful with that. It's very secular. And this last view here, Christian theism, this is the only biblical thinking that we should have in viewing contentment. Christian theism is a real and true infinite personal relationship with the creator God who has revealed himself in both what he has made and in the Bible. He loved me while yet a sinner has provided a means to take care of my sin problem through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, I can be brought back into a personal relationship with him. I belong to God and my life makes sense living for his purposes in everything for both the past and eternity. Life is about serving the Lord. And if this last worldview is not what you hold to in belief and practice, you'll never be content in life. Recognizing that God is the creator of all things, recognizing that God provides everything, recognizing that God allows certain things and permits certain things in our life, and we have to learn how to be content. And if you don't live that way, then you're never gonna be content because you're just slipping back into those old world views of thought uh, that uh, so many of us hold to. And so this has to be corrected before you can apply the secret of contentment. So how can we have true contentment in every circumstance, good or bad, that result in a rejoicing always, where we won't be anxious about anything, but responding in proper prayer and supplication with thanksgiving unto the Lord? How has that happened? How do we get contentment? Next week. Okay. Let's pray. If you're interested in more information about our church, 
or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifewiththeridge.church.